You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome in to the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get to this week's guest, a former Marine pilot who spent over 20 years in the Marine Corps, including time piloting Marine One. He has four deployments overseas, including to Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, he's been a pilot pretty much his entire career. He currently, in his post-military career, works with a group called the Spire Development Group that works in real estate and A28 Ventures, which does coaching and consulting. And as I mentioned, a pilot of Marine One under President Trump and President Biden. He is John Ballinger joining us here on the Hazard Ground Podcast. John, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Hey, Mark. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm excited about the show. <laughs> I'm excited that you're here. It's not often I get to talk to guys who uh, who, who shuffle the president around. So <laughs> uh, I'm glad that we're able to, uh, to to get you in here. Yeah, man. Um, it's interesting because, you know, um, when you have a job like that, um, it feels like it's much more high profile than it is. I mean, looking back, did you just get to see and do some cooler things you never would have thought? Well, absolutely. I mean, it is, it is a high profile job. It, it's one of those that, that you dream about and, and, you know, I think few get to actually do and see, but I'll tell you what, Mark, flying around a bunch of Marines um, and landing them safely into a zone seemed to put a bigger smile on my face uh, than sometimes flying the president from airport to airport. But, yeah. um, you know, it was a unique opportunity. I'm blessed to have it. And uh, yeah, life lifetime of experiences kind of wrapped up into five years. Yeah, I'm sure that uh, you had a lot of VIPs uh, who uh, uh, may have gotten an extra beverage on their flight or not uh, <laughs> along the way. No, I kid, I kid. Uh, start back at the beginning, though. Uh, how and yeah. why the Marine Corps? Did you always know you wanted to be a pilot? You know, it's it's interesting, Mark. When I was growing up, my dad was in aviation. He was the manager of uh, an airport in Tulsa, Oklahoma. He started flying when he was 14. He was crop dusting when he was 14 out in the panhandle of Texas. So aviation's always been kind of in our family history. I've got a couple cousins that served in the Air Force for 20 years and the Navy for 20. So it was always around going to air shows, um, it wasn't really until college that I got offered a job in my junior year. And I thought to myself, man, this is exciting. I've got a job. I, I'm getting ready, getting ready to graduate. I get to be in my hometown. And then the more that that sat in, um, shoot, it just felt sterile. It was like, what am I doing? I'm, I'm 20, 20 years old at the time, athletic, healthy, ready, you know, ready to move, ready to go, wanting to tour the world. Why would I settle in this place and just take a, a desk job? And so I started kind of teasing that thread and trying to figure that out. And and I did go to um, recruiters and talk and have those discussions. And it was ultimately the Marine Corps that said, Hey, we're looking for pilots right now. It was uh, pre 2000, you know, pre September 11th, but um, they were kind of forecasting forward. And so they were willing to offer up an aviation contract and I jumped on it and didn't know where that was going to lead. And for a while I thought, you know, I'm, I'm going to be, you know, get my contract out of the way, be done and, and then go do something else. But it just became more fulfilling. It became more of, of what I wanted to do and who I was and really filled that box. And so I just, I stayed in and uh, found myself at 20 years and thought, man, I, 
I really did win um, in this last 20 years. I really did feel like I, I left winning a Super Bowl um, the way I was able to exit. So, you know, really thankful for those, you know, for those people that spoke into my life and gave me the opportunity to be around aviation and be around aircraft and um, couldn't think of a better way to, to fulfill that. Now, how did nine now, how and when did nine 11 factor into all this for you? I mean, like, you know, when does it happen and where are you? Yeah. So I was nine 11. I was a junior um, in school and I'd already spoken to the recruiter already kind of committed, you know, the, the, the time that I was going to go in after graduation. Um, but yeah, I was in Tulsa, Oklahoma, going to Oral Roberts University when um, I watched the the planes hit the World Trade Center and man, um, knew right then that that was going to change the direction, not necessarily how I was going into the military, but change, you know, and really alter the direction that the country was going to go for, for, you know, unforeseeable amount of time. I mean, but for a guy who just like, hey, I like to fly and I want to be in a cockpit, the idea of doing that in a combat scenario, did that unnerve you at all? I don't think it did. I don't think it really sank in. You know, I knew what I was already signing up for as everybody does, you know, and, and when we all sign up, we think that's kind of the best case scenario is, is getting to exercise what you've learned and practiced and mastered. Um, I don't think it really did set in though, that, that, that was going to encompass the next 20 years of my career. Yeah, I, I was I, just, yeah. I'm the exact opposite. I signed up at a pre 9 11 world and I thought never going to go to war. This is stupid. I got nothing to worry about. And then it was, oh shit. Oh, okay. Now, now things have changed a lot. So I was a little bit, I was sure. delusional and stupid and young and everything else, but I was a little bit different from you in that sense. Well, I think I was, I was young and delusional and stupid as well. I just didn't know the toll, you know, that we were going to be, yeah, yeah. you know, that the country was going to take over the next 20 years. And I think, you know, when people ask what combat is to me, and it may be different for other people, but I always say it's kind of like the Super Bowl. It's it's where a team practices, a team gets tested time and time again, and then a team gets to exercise on the highest stage and the highest platform. And and so that to me was the ability to showcase what we spent so much time doing as a unit. Yeah. Um, and so for me, avi in aviation, that meant getting Marines in and out of combat. It meant getting supplies in and out of um, out of the front lines. So that's what it, it embodied for me. So you end up graduating. Uh, what's your sort of, you know, quick path, obviously nine 11 happens the, the, the work in Afghanistan kicks off. I mean, where do you go? Do you go right to flight school? You go to officer basic course. Why does it work for you? Yeah. For, so for the Marines, we all go to OC, OCS um, for candidate school and officer candidate school. And then we all go to the basic school. There's no shortcut. There's no abbreviated course. It's 10 weeks at OCS. It's, uh, six months at the basic school, learning how to be Marines before we get in our aircraft, before we get in to our tanks or start leading troops on the ground or become lawyers. That's just the way the Marine Corps has always done it. And then after that, it was off to flight school. So Pensacola, Florida for a couple months, then Corpus Christi to advanced and then back to Pensacola uh, for follow-up flight school. And then San Diego was my first duty station where I was really able to uh, master and learn the CH-53, which, um, which is what I flew for the majority of my career. Did, um, at any point in time, did you feel like you weren't going to make it through, um, CS in the basic? I mean, did, did it, did it look like, Hey, maybe I made a bad decision? 
Oh yeah. (laughs) Time and time again, man, it was interesting. Um, when I got to OCS, um, those first 10 weeks I'd left Tulsa, Oklahoma. I'd left the only place I'd ever lived. The only friends I'd ever known for this unknown thing. And I got to OCS and I was thinking, who the hell am I to be, you know, try to be a Marine. I, I just didn't fathom the depth of development that I needed to go through. And it was, um, it was a real identity check. It was a real gut check as to who am I and what am I doing this for? Um, and time and time again, it kept resonating with this is, you know, this is my opportunity to serve. I've got other service members in my family. They had their chance. Um, now's my chance to do this. And man, when you look down and you see your name on your uniform, that's, that's a real marker as to who, who you are. And you think to yourself, all these people are seeing Ballinger across your chest. What are they going to think when they see Ballinger? But man, I'll tell you what, it was, it was not hard. It was not easy for me to, um, to, to get through it, uh, without some real, you know, conformity and some real identity, um, you know, foundational, um, assessments to who I'm, who I am and what am I doing this for? Yeah. And again, I I think that that gut check, you know, comes for all of us at some point in time, right. It comes to to a place where you you figure out what what, am I, am I really, you know, as good at this as I, I think I am and and can I do it to the level that I think I can. And I think that's, you know, something ultimately that we're all trying to to figure out one way or another. Um, When you get to flight school, you already had this whole sort of background in aviation. Um, Was it, was that better for you? Was it more difficult, less difficult? Does the military or the Marines do things a different way? What was that transition? Man, we, we go through, so the Marine Corps goes through the same Naval aviation training that the Navy and the Coast Guard go through. So we're all together, Navy, Marines, Coast Guard pilots. And I went in, one of the things that was unique about going in on an aviation contract to the Marine Corps is they didn't require you to have any aviation experience. Unlike the Air Force that goes through, you know, a lot of their pilots go through the Academy, Navy, they, a lot of those guys get, you know, flight experience in the Naval Academy. I had none. I had been around a lot of pilots in my day, uh, but I was an imposter to the, to the T when it came to knowing about flying. And so learning all the fundamentals. It was the hardest thing I'd ever gone through. I thought college was hard and and I kind of skated through college. I was struggling in flight school. Um, and it was not lost on me that I was going to need some, some significant help from my peers, from instructors. And it was, you know, things like navigation, no understanding how you navigate in the air and, and, and how that works. And, just some of the fundamentals that were causing some significant problems in my life. And I thought to myself, I am, I am not fit to do this. And unless some miraculous thing happens, I'm not going to be here much longer, but time and time again, I was able to um, test myself again, whether that was uh, a test that I screwed the pooch on and didn't, you know, had to redo or some extra you know, training that I had to go through. Um, my career was definitely not pretty getting through the basic fundamentals of flight, but I had grace, I believe on my life. And that was shown through the the friends that I had made 
the mentors that, that were able to spend time with me and just my own, you know, having fortitude within myself to say, this is it. If I don't do this, I'm, um, I've got to, I'm going to be looking for something else to do. So it was tough, uh, initially. So when you get to your first unit and you get your first, you know, uh, aircraft, um, which is the CH 53, am I right in that? Yeah. CH 53 echo. Um, and so, uh, you know, you're in what sometime 2002 range, right? Yeah. So it actually, so I, I went to basic and officer candidate school in 2002, right after graduation. And it took me three years to actually get my wings. So 2005, I get winged, um, and I'm at Miramar, um, at the beginning of, or the end of 2005. So it was significant time after the war had kicked off. And so well, that we was, kinda... yeah, that was where I was going. Like, how soon do you think you're getting to combat at this point? You have two wars going on. Are you chomping at the bit to go, or you just don't care? I just want to fly. What's your mentality? You know, it, it was both. I wanted to fly. Cause I knew that was my MOS. I knew that was my job. You know, I'm wearing Navy wings of gold that I, that I had earned. And now I wanted to prove myself, but there's a significant road or significant runway that you have to go down before you're able to be proven, you know, proving yourself in combat. So I'm at Miramar. Um, when I first got to my unit, I mean, there's four or five CH-53 squadrons at Miramar and they're all pushing out and they're just rotating. One comes in, the next one goes out, you know? And so I had gotten the, to the squadron that I was going to, and they were going, they were slated to go on a Mew eight months later and they were going to replace uh another you uh, another you know portion of our squadron so we're going on this marine expeditionary unit we're going to okinawa and from okinawa we're going to push out and go somewhere else so i had a eight month window where i that was my time to get trained up to learn to to be a you know comparable co-pilot that that was going to be trusted and leaned on to get the job done. And, uh, yeah, so it's, it's when you know that final destination, you can, you put a different significance on your training. And so that's what I did. I tried to hold myself to a very high standard. I tried to perform and go through those training flights and knowing that, that one day that training was going to be what I relied upon. So I know you mentioned that you had the Mew first. Um, you yeah. don't actually end up in combat there, but you end up going to Iraq. When does that happen? Yeah. So my second, so right when I got back from the Mew, uh, which we were in Okinawa, Japan from Okinawa, we pushed out to the Philippines and some of those um, Pacific islands. We come back and immediately once we are back, they are chopping people from the squadron with experience looking for, you know, the co-pilots and the junior captains that can go over to the next unit and fill voids where they work because we had so many squadrons pushing out. There was always a squadron coming back and people PCSing and people going off to do other things like weapons and tactics school or individual augments. So there was a void and immediately we get back from the Mew and they say, okay, who wants to, you know, who wants to go to Iraq with this next unit? And, you know, um, my name was called and and I raised my hand. And so immediately just walked down the street to the next unit. And it was another six month runway. Hey, we're, we're pushing out to Iraq in six months, get ready. So it wasn't, it wasn't long. And, and after that, but, but then the training changes, right? Cause I went from flying and landing on ship 
to let's go figure out how to land in the dust and and deploy troops in those austere environments. When do you actually get to Iraq? Yeah, so it was it was six months later, and and so that was early two thousand seven. Okay, um, you're, you're in the middle of a surge then, obviously. Yep. yep. Um, are, what are you told about your mission? I just said you you were just moving troops, but was it that simple? I mean, you know. Well, I, I'm not 100% and forgive my ignorance of aircraft, yeah. but the CH-53 Echo is what type of, is it just a, a troop transport? Yeah. No, so no. the CH-53 uh, Echo, I mean, I, I call it the trash truck or the school bus, you know, we're moving um, things that need to get moved around, whether that's troops, food, ammo, you know, uh, mail, if it's anything that needs to be moved, it needs to be moved um, over lines that, you know, vehicles can't get through we're doing it or it needs to be moved in a expeditious manner. We're doing it um, day, night, all weather we're, we're getting it done. So we're kind of, you know, the, the platform that's called upon when, when something needs to be, you know, delivered, we're doing it. So it's, it's not the sexy, you know, firing, you know, role and the assault it's assault support. It's getting, getting things moved. Um, but sometimes, you know, those timelines you can't uh, control and those those things need to happen when it's not convenient. Um, but we get to Iraq and, and they say, hey, you're falling in on a squadron that's already been doing this and we're going to go and we're going to go day and night and you're going to get it done. So, you know, I, I know that you have interviewed in, individuals with very sexy jobs. This is less sexy than that. And uh, kind of sterile. Um, no, I, I, look, but... I always, I always respond to that uh, very simply. That you know, uh, the war effort is a pie, and everybody's got their slice. And while some yeah. slices may be tastier and have better bites, and some may be bigger, and some may be smaller, you don't get the whole pie without every bit of it. Yeah, so, exactly. You know, I mean, I, I, by nature, I should have never had a sexy job. I just fell in on one, and I would guarantee you too as well. Uh, the idea of landing troops uh, into a hot zone or getting them out of there while taking fire probably, you know, qualifies as sexy. It just depends on who you ask uh, and their, their <laughs> version of sexy. Um, but that said, I mean, you know, when you get in there, what is the operational tempo like? I know you said you were going day and night, but was it, it was it much more than you ever imagined? It was. I mean, my, you know, we, we look at it as, as flight hours and sorties and, you know, you, you earn those hours very quickly. Um, and it's, Daytime flights are the flights that are are more benign, you know, the more transport of of troops in and out of of the fobs and getting them into into the positions they need to be in. And then at night it is, you know, you're going into the more hostile zones, you're going into places where, you know, you're expected and the tempo's higher. And so you would do, you know six weeks or so on days and then you go and do four four weeks or so at night and then you just rinse and repeat and it was everyday flights i mean it was rare that we had a day off and when you did have a day off it was you know 100 percent resting to get ready for the next day because you know we're you know obviously the environment's austere it's hot it's it's nasty and we're in those aircraft for eight ten hours a time you know sitting there flying back and forth, getting, getting things moved. So it definitely tested, you know, the, the conditions that we were used to where, you know, the deployment before much shorter flights, much better weather, uh, much, uh, more, con um, 
better conditions for flying where now, you know, it's, it's, you're on. And when you're on, you're going and you're going eight hours, 10 hours hot and, and you're not getting the break. Uh, and when you do, you land and you swap out aircraft and air crew, and then they're pushing out and going again. So much different. I mean, when, when this whole thing starts for you, um, you know, I mean, is there, what, what is the greatest imminent sense of danger for you at this point in time? Or do you feel any, do you acknowledge it? I mean, yeah. other than crashing, obviously. <laughs> yeah. I mean, are, you, yeah. are, are, are there hot zones you're landing guys in and out of? What's the, what's that? There were, there were, yeah, we, we classified them just probably like everyone else does black, you know, red, yellow, green. Um, and pretty much everything was green or yellow unless we're going at night and it's red um, we typically did not go into the red zones unless it was necessity. Um, right. I mean, that's, that's downtown Baghdad. That's, that's other zones outside of Baghdad proper. Um, and so, you know, the threat is there, you know, landing in a soccer field and deploying 24, 28 troops, 20, you know, Marines, sar- soldiers and sailors into those zones while you've got four nationals, securing the zone, watching those guys, not knowing who they really are, not knowing if they're really your friend, if they're really providing protection, you know, that, that was, that was definitely, you know, on the forefront of our mind, but then we started developing, you know, TTPs where we're going in and we're doing different things that are a little bit more dynamic where we don't know where we're landing um, until the last second, until, you know, our, our, escorts are giving us the clear that the zone is secure and, and it's, and it's clear enough. And we're landing next to a hut that we don't really know who is in, you know, those things kind of escalated and became more of a, something that we had to plan around and we had to still execute knowing that there was risk, but knowing that the risk was mitigated down to the level that we were comfortable executing on. You're running these flights eight, eight, 10 hours a day. I, you know, it's funny. I've never really asked this question of a pilot before because it, I've only been a passenger. But um, what is what is the flight fatigue like? I mean, you know, when you're done at the end of an eight, 10-hour day of flying, I mean, yeah. you know, it, 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 I assume nothing is routine if you look back on it, right? I mean, there's got to be something about that day that sort of, you know, uh, throws you for a loop a little bit, no? There was, you know, it's, there was, what, nothing was routine. Um, you try to make it routine because that's what you want to operate in as something in the known. But I mean, from the heat and the, I don't want to say, um, stagnation, but, but you're sitting there in this, in this aircraft in a position where you're piloting for hours on end. And man, I'll tell you what, some of those days I got out and just realized, I didn't realize the physical drain on my body until I, I stood up and tried to get out of the aircraft and just and realized that the, for, for prolonging yourself in those temperatures with that loss of, you know, water and, and energy, you, it, it depletes you. And then to go back and try to replenish, to do it all over again and know that you've got six to seven months of this, um, it does put a drain on you. And I think everybody that goes through a deployment has the high of arriving and then, you know, the two month high, and then the low is kind of that three, four, five month trough. 
And then the sixth and seventh month of getting ready to leave, kind of you ramp back up into this excitement of, of getting ready to go home. But it's that, it's that three, four, five month trough where complacency starts to set in, where you do get comfortable, even if it's not um, standardized, you do get comfortable with jumping in the aircraft for eight hours and think, oh, I got this. I did it yesterday. I'm going to do it again. Where man, those are eye openers where you get too close to the other aircraft, where you do see shots fired on you when you're coming into the LZ, where you do come in and the landing wasn't um, as smooth as you wanted it to be because you've gotten rusty and or, or have allowed yourself to degradate from your the skills that you were bringing initially. So yeah. it does happen. And sometimes it's just that quick moment that scares you right back into, oh man, I'm here for a purpose. I need to stay focused on what I'm doing right this second, not an hour away or tomorrow. By the way, side note, you know, that high of the first two months when you're in the army, the low is three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten months. And then you get high for 11 and 12 when you come I'm back sorry. home. Thank you very much, United States <laughs> Army, for doing everything ass backwards. We appreciate you. I apologize. Uh, Soldier for life. Yeah. Uh, anyway, but <laughs> hey, man, I'm still in because uh, I'm a glutton for punishment. But you know, <laughs> like with you just talked about, because my next question was simply, can you recall a kind of a, a, a bleep moment, you know, um, where that sort of complacency and, and it, look, it happens to all of us. Right. It yeah. happened to me. Uh, you get complacent. You know, I ran the same convoy, you know, 25 times. And by the time you get to 12 or 13, like, let's just go hurry up. Come on, let's go. Like, you know you sort of feel like everything, you know, you, you start to eliminate a lot of the threat factors because you get very used to it. Uh, was there an incident that you could think of on that deployment, whether it was complacency or whatever, that puts your, your pucker factor up really high? Yeah. Um, I mean, the first one that comes to mind is, you know, we have to be good judges of weather. We have to be good judges of the conditions we're operating in. And I remember coming back from a fob and it was a, it was a pretty long leg, but we had expected the weather to get bad slower than it actually progressed. So we're coming back and we, we see that Al Assad is enveloping in a sandstorm. Oh yeah. And I think to myself, okay, I think I can make it. I think I can outrun this sandstorm. I think I can get to safety. I'm, I'm open desert right now. That seems no. like a real tough negotiation, by the way, I'm not sure <laughs> what the calculations in your head were, but the idea of outrunning a sandstorm is like outrunning an avalanche. Yeah, you're right. You're right. And pretty soon, you know, we can, we can speed up only to an extent, but then when we find ourselves in that sandstorm, we've got to go slower, lower until it gets unsafe. And we decided to go slower, lower. We're going to limp back home. We're going to make it to inside the wire before we land these things. You know, Mark, that gets to a place where it's like, this is, this is stupid. If, if I don't make it back, there's no use. We had to land those aircraft and we stayed spinning while this sandstorm passes and sandstorms last 20 minutes to two hours, you know, and you're thinking the whole world knows I'm out here. Cause I'm just this loud machine spinning on the ground and what's going to happen. You can't see the other aircraft, you know, that's that landed next to you, let alone any, anybody that's coming in. But for those moments, you know, you just sit there and you pray and you evaluate, how did you get to this place? What, what decisions did I make that led to this? And thankfully I'm on the deck safely. So I've, I've mitigated it, you know, the, the threat of crashing, but what, but I just put my crew in un, you know, unnecessary harm when I could have sat at the last base and waited it out. 
but I had get home itis. I was ready to get back and be in, in the comfort bubble that I had established for myself. But there we sit waiting. Fortunately, the, the sandstorm passes, gives us enough visibility to get back. We get back, we land, we debrief. But in that debrief, I had to apologize to the crew. I put you at harm's risk unnecessarily because I thought I could do something that I was ill-prepared to do. And it's, it's, it's easy to look everybody in the eye when you all make it back safely, but you also know the alternative and you also have to be respectful that it might not have worked out that way. So, you know, sorry is, is about all you can say, but you, you feel so much worse. Um, and, and that's one example. I mean, I've got a couple others, but yeah, it's, it's interesting right. to have that send, complexity. Send I'm, I'm curious. Send it, send send me another one. I, I'm cause I have some thoughts circulating. Yeah. So uh, coming back, you know, we, we go from LZ to LZ to LZ. It's, I mean, it's a, a round Robin, if you will. And some days it's, it's different directions and it's different links and, you know, we've got our, our spider routes. And so we're always planning fuel to be very concise so that we have the fuel we need to get where, you know, to get to us, get our, our, to our next LZ. Well, if you're not doing that planning at each LZ and you're refusing to take fuel at each place or you refuse fuel, fuel one time and you think you've got enough. Well, again, complacency. I'm not doing the math because it's hard and it takes time and I'm ready to go. And, oh yeah, we'll be fine. I did this yesterday. But what if, what if you have that sandstorm hit and you've got to spin on the deck for an hour or two hours, and now you've got to shut down aircraft. And now you're relying on outside sources to come bring you fuel. That didn't happen to me, but we got to the place where we're limping back and I'm thinking, I, I think I've got the fuel, but does my, does my other aircraft have the fuel? did I just put them in harm's way because we refused fuel at the last stop because of time? Well, we get back again. You say your sorries, you know, sure enough, the next unit that came out and replace us, they end up running out of fuel on short final coming into a, to the LZ and into land and Marines died because they didn't do the prior planning and the calculations. And you know, part of that's crew, part of that's the assessment of, of the risk and the mission, but it's very sobering to say I was this close to having that happen to me. And I don't want to put my crew in that situation. How do you gauge, I mean, every situation is different, but how do you gauge the, the risk versus reward in those scenarios? I mean, you know, again, some of the, Look, it's certain things happen while you're already in the air, right? I.e., again, you know, it's, it's hard to know when a sandstorm is going to pop up, but it's also hard to know when weather is going to change. I mean, obviously you do your homework, but hey, you know, roads I thought were green and yellow uh, ended yeah. up being not so green and yellow by the time you got out there. And, you know, the last time I checked this morning, it was green. I, I followed the information I had. I did the best of that I had when I was yeah. given it. But now new situations unfold. So what's your what's your calculus while you're up in the aircraft trying to figure this out? Well, Mark, I think the difference is, you know, at some point we have to collect the data we got. And then we as operators have to make the decision to go and, and press forward. If the data is bad, that's more of an acceptable risk to me than the risk being internal to the decisions that I made. Right. If if I'm not if I'm relying on data and that data changes 
or that data was, was not good in the first place. I've just got to adapt. That's, that's part of the, the fog of war, right? That's, that's part of the OODA loop and overcoming adversity. But when I know that I make that decision internally because of laziness, because of, um, discomfort, then, then that's a harder pill for me to swallow than, than the alternative. Does that answer your question? Yeah, no, again, I, I think it's, I, but I, I, you know, again, I think it's different for everybody, you know, um, sure. and we talk all the time about those, even when bullets start flying, those split de- second decisions to either go right, go left, or, you know, wh- whatever you're going to do, um, that ultimately could change the outcome and have very drastic and, and you know, uh, yeah. long left, uh, you know, after effects. So I, I think it's different for everybody, but I also, you know, I always, I'm always curious to people's decision-making processes and how they do that. I mean, you know, I, to me, I don't know, you know, as a passenger, when I get on, even when I get on a civilian flight, you know, I kind of just sit there and I think, well, I have to assume that we're going to land safely. Um, I don't know how much that fear creeps into your guy's head every time you get in the cockpit of, you know, I assume nothing like, you know, that I'm always going to be prepared for the worst case scenario, you know, worst case scenario for me is getting stuck in the middle seat. I mean, you know, like, I don't know what else to tell you, but for you guys, it's a lot different. Yeah. I think part of that's, trusting the process, trusting the training, you know, we like anybody do the crawl, walk, run. Mm -hmm. We work to hone our abilities. So, you know, we're landing daily to get better. And whether that's an austere environment, like a runway, or that's, you know, it's an environment that requires every part of our training, low light, dusty, hostile environment where we're landing our aircraft knowing that we've got to get out of there or we've got to get, you know, whatever safely off the aircraft. We've trained to that. We've trained to execute, to hit a certain time parameter to land plus or minus 30 seconds of the objective. We've trained to that and we've gotten very good at it. And so I think when we strap on an aircraft, we understand what we've trained for. We understand our limits and we try to keep it within the box that we have created for ourselves. Sometimes it does go drastically outside the box, but you have to be able to rein it back in very quickly um, or adapt. So what uh, was the, know. what was the most hostile area you landed in during that deployment? Um, just outside of Baghdad um, in an LZ at, at night. Um, it was a, it was a red zone. So we go in blacked out, we go in unpredictable and we try to, you know, be as um, unnoticeable as possible. Um, You know, we did that a handful of times, but, you know, fortunately for me, never, you know, I didn't end up with, you know, an aircraft that got shot up too bad or, or got, you know, ended up with a disabled aircraft. So definitely blessed there, but um, heavily, you have to re- rely on the intel and, and the the intel of the people that have gone in the day before, the night before, to where those areas are that you have to avoid. Um, so, you know, for us, because we're big and slow and, and you know, easy targets, we have to be very um, calculated about when we go in. And so, yeah, yeah that was that was it. Were you one of those pilots who was more comfortable doing those type of missions than necessarily during the day? (laughs) 
I wouldn't say I was comfortable. I would say that you know that you've worked up to it again, trust in the process. I've been in combat in, in zone or in Iraq for a period of time before they put me on those missions. And so you kind of see the full gamut before you have to go do, you know, you know, go land in an environment like that. They're not going to stick you in week two when you are still sleeping off the, the time zone conversion, <clears throat> there's definitely, again, the crawl, walk, run and, and the Marine Corps and Marine Corps aviation does it very well, where they're going to get you prepared in incremental steps until you're ready to go. You are a full up round and you're ready to see the full gamut that they throw at you. When you get back from that deployment, is there a sense of relief? Absolutely. Why? Uh, <laughs> well, for me, I, I, got i proposed to my my fiance before i left okay <laughs> we actually we actually went to a justice of the peace to get married uh without any of our family knowing because i thought to myself if something does happen i want her to be taken care of um and we had started to plan what our life looks like after after that deployment so when you come back and you can fulfill those things that you wanted to do i mean there is there's this yeah, I, I went, I did it again, going back to that Super Bowl analogy, you, you're, you're kind of like, man, that was, that was, that was interesting. Um, I'm glad that I'm, I'm blessed to be back because I know people that didn't make it back and I know Marines that didn't make it back. And I feel very fortunate that I've got my career, my life still ahead of me. And, and you start to recognize the sacrifice that your friends and fellow Marines and fellow service members have made along the way. And, and you do feel a sense of gratitude for coming back. So you get back what sometime in 2008, mm -hmm. um, you don't uh, end up back in another combat zone for almost a decade. So what's, what happens in between? Yeah, well, I, I went um, again, I went to another squadron and we got ready for um, the 11th uh, Mew. Marine Expeditionary Unit. And again, we we pushed out. And this, while it wasn't a, a designated combat zone, we were in support of everything going on between mm -hmm. Africa, the Middle East, you know, um, Saudi Arabia and in the Red Sea. So we're out there, definitely not getting shot at it on a daily basis, but we're in the thick of it. And we're kind of the the 911 force if we need to be called in, we're the first ones ready to go. So we trained to that. Um, and that was eight months of, you know, being on ship, which is <laughs> its own sense, own sort of complications and, and issues and, and, and different lifestyle. Um, but then I came back from that and, and yeah, it was back to um, flying on uh, in CONUS. I went to flight school and I started becoming a trainer to train new pilots within the 53 community. So I got to develop them. Um, and then after that, that's something you wanted to do, or is that something the Marine Corps just gave you the assignment for? Well, I think it's probably the same uh, for all forces. You know, there's three things yeah. that, uh, that determine where you're going to go, right. It's, it's your, your wants, and then, you know, your ideas of what your career is going to be. And then it's the needs of the Marine Corps, right? So they're going to get their pound of flesh out of you. Um, but I, I did. 
I wanted to go and give back because I had a wonderful experience going through my flight training and I wanted to go and I wanted to make a difference. So I went to, you know, North Carolina to new river there in the Marine Corps air station. And I was able to train new 53 pilots and train them in a way that I had seen useful in my career and, and tried to avoid the things that I thought were detrimental to the, to the learning process. So I did that. And then I went off, um, as a major, I went off for my department head tour. So I went to Hawaii and was stationed there on Oahu for three years, um, to be a department head, be a maintenance officer, help that squadron try to get, um, you know, get their aircraft in order. Um, and then from there I went off to Afghanistan. Uh, in that time in between, do you feel like you're missing out because you're not back in that sort of Super Bowl environment that you were talking about earlier? Yeah, there's definitely, definitely a feeling that there are other people out there doing more important things than you. You know, anytime there's a war kicked off, you know, and you're back at home, you think, man, I, I wish I could be exercising these skills and I wish I could be, you know, pushing the envelope and doing these these things that I was meant to do, but you also, I think mature to understand that there's a process and there's a pipeline. And if we are not back filling that pipeline with, with dedicated operators and professionals and making those people better than we were before, it's then we're going to find ourselves never out of that cycle. Um, and so I, I, I did feel like I was missing out. But I also knew that my position at the time as, as a flight instructor and then going off to maintain these aircraft in Hawaii, that I was just, you know, a cog doing an important portion of the mission, whether you, whether it's truly important or not, it's the importance is what you put on it. And, and I felt like it was important. Piece of the pie, right? Piece of the pie. <laughs> yeah, um, there you go. So you end up in Afghanistan next. Uh, but um, you're actually not back in the cockpit, though. Disappointing, upsetting. What was your feelings? Well, you, you know, that deployment was unique for me. So when I was in Hawaii, I had a, a series of events happen that really opened my eyes and, and made me kind of change the trajectory of my career. So when I was in Hawaii, um, first couple months we were there, my wife was pregnant with our daughter. She lived 86 days in the NICU and then she passed away, um, which, which definitely makes you realize, um, how important relationships are and the value of time on, on lives. Um, but then shortly after a, a almost a year after, um, our squadron had a crash. We had two fifty threes that collided midair off the North shore of Oahu and four pilots and eight aircrew lost, lost their lives. And it, it rocked our squadron. It changed the things that we were planning on doing. And I, I was fortunate enough not to be in the aircraft, but I was then assigned to, to do the crash investigation. So I picked up doing some of the maintenance reviews over the aircraft and helping write that investigation. And I'll tell you, being around aircraft that, flew members of your squadron that you've lost now and being around that on a daily basis for six months really messes with your ability to think that you're a competent pilot because 
we lost competent pilots. We lost some of our, the best pilots we had in our squadron. And you start to think if I lost them, if we lost them and their families are now without those members, who am I to, to say that I'm going to make it through to, you know, the next, make it through the next flight. And so knowing that limitation, I actually went to um, the commanding officer of the unit that the mag, the unit that oversaw our squadron. And I said, I, I just need a breather. I need to get out of the cockpit for a little bit. I need to reevaluate what I'm doing, but I still think I'm valuable in a way to the Marine Corps. I'd love to go deploy, but I don't think it's at a, in a flying context right now. <clears throat> so we searched and found that there was a NATO role that I could fill, do an aviation um, supported um, planning. And that was for the airfield in Kabul. And that was that I was planning the, the turnover and the handover of the, the, the Kabul airfield back to Afghani hands. Obviously it didn't happen the way that I had planned because mine was a five-step plan and, and didn't, didn't happen as succinctly, but I was over there for nine months writing the plan in which we were going to give to the Afghanis so that they could continue to run their airfield in a profitable and meaningful way for, for Afghanistan. Um, but while I wasn't flying, one of the best best deployments I could have ever had. We'll get back to uh, Kabul Airfield uh, here in a little bit. Um, yeah. I mean, is it is it lost upon you that you know you've lost? You mentioned you lost other Marines, other pilots um, while you were in Iraq. You you had the accident over there in Hawaii. Um, is there like a level of uh, I don't know, frustration is the right word, but you keep losing all these guys and, and you're, it's not in a combat scenario. I mean, like, you know, to a certain extent you, you understand if a, if a helicopter gets shot down, you understand if an RPG hits an yeah. helicopter and you know, yeah. you're in a hot zone, like that's negotiable to a certain extent. Um, you had a couple of close calls and then you have this training accident uh, for lack of a better term in Hawaii. Yeah. So, I mean, is there any guilt or frustration over that sort of thing? I think, I think we all internalize it um, and, and do personalize it um, to a different degree. Yes, there is frustration. Yes. You're like, just like, you know, the, the public, you know, watching this unfold and they ask, why do all these accidents happen in your training? That shouldn't be the case. But if we are not training to the level at which we're expected to perform in combat, we're going to be ineffective in combat. Right. So yes, it, it is horrible that we lose pilots and, and service members in our training. But again, we have to push ourselves. We have to stretch that envelope so that we're comfortable when we are landing in combat and bullets start flying and radios are going off and Marines are getting on wounded and there's chaos and confusion. We have to be comfortable. And the only way to do that, only way to, to, to push that envelope and to fill that void is to train like we are in combat when we're not. And, um, you know, it, it's difficult. It's difficult to internalize and think why, why them? And why not me? I just flew the flight the day before that was the exact same profile that they flew. Why not me? Or what was going through their minds that 
might've been going through my mind, you know, and you try to put yourself in that situation. But then again, you have to remove yourself and say, I'm here. I still have a mission in front of me. I've still got to get the job done. So after the NATO assignment, um, that's where you get selected to be um, the, in the helicopter squadron of one Marine one. Uh, how does yeah. that job assignment come about? Did it work out through the NATO thing as well? Oh man. Um, that was, that was an interesting part because I had actually applied to be part of HMX one, um, the Marine helicopter squadron, um, almost eight years prior, six, seven years prior. Oh, really? Um, I applied. It was a great chance for me to do it. I had no kids. I was newly married. I was already living in DC for school. And I thought this is a perfect segue. Um, but I, I'll let you know, speeding, tickets that you got when you were 16, 17, 18, up to 30 years old, they come back to haunt you because I had uh, more than I, more than that were allowed. And I was told, Hey, John, great application. We'd love to have you not going to work out this time. Reapply in five to six, seven years from now, if you're still around speeding tickets for speeding tickets, Um, because it's, it's a, it's a display that I'm unable to, to follow direct authority. Uh, and I, no, I gotta... it's really not, but that's, that, that's a, that's a far stretch. It, it, it's not, um, it, it's, it, it's a matter of getting where you're going. That's number one, number sure. two, but you know, the decisions you make at 18, 19, 20 years old, um, should not reflect on your ability to do jobs 20 years down the road. Well, the other half of this story is three of those tickets that I had had happened three years prior when I was in North Carolina. And so still, I mean, yeah, still it would be one thing if you were like alluded the cops and they, you know, you know, had to go on a, on an eight mile chase at 90 miles an hour. I mean, you know, yeah. Getting pulled over doing 65 and a 40 should not preclude you from being a good helicopter pilot. Like that's the other thing. Well, I'll tell you, there's, there's a lot of remotely related there's a lot of scrutiny on who the squadron chooses and as competitive as it is, they can use anything they want to, 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 to help narrow down the pool, the talent pool. Now, how did you right? know when you, when you first applied seven years earlier that you wanted to do that? Was that, I mean, why was that on your radar even? Well, you know, the Marine Corps doesn't really have a demonstration team. Like, you know, the air force has got the blue angels. Army's got the golden Knights. Air Force got the Thunderbirds. I guess the Marine Corps got the silent drill platoon, but, but for aviation, you know, Marine one is, is kind of, is the way that we display how great the Marine Corps is right. And the, the, the pride within the Marine Corps itself. And so I, I had buddies that were applying and they kind of piqued my interest. And I thought, you know, I, I could do that. I, that's, that's something that I can do. I can elevate my game even further. I can push myself to that level. Um, so I applied and I didn't get in. So, you know, I'm in Afghanistan. Um, just before I went to Afghanistan, I told my wife, I said, Hey, applications are coming up again for this, this squadron. It's not really the best time. Cause now we've got, we had two, two kids, uh, two boys in between our daughter. And I said, you know, we're, I've got just a few more years of my career. I don't think it's the best time, but I, I would like to try, but it's going to be a big toll on our family. And it's a lot of unknowns and it's a lot of, you know, it's a, it's a big requirement. And 
she said, John, if you don't do this, you are going to regret this decision for the rest of your life. If you don't at least try, if you don't at least put yourself out there, fill out the application. If you don't get selected, so be it. But if, if you don't fill out the application, hundred percent chance, you're not going to get in. And, um, so I, I put my application in, went to Afghanistan while I was there, I got selected for Lieutenant Colonel and I got notified that I was going to be accepted to the squadron. So two big, you know, emotional wins for me at the time, um, while I'm there exercising my duties, uh, on, on the NATO base. So, um, you know, very rewarding to come off a, a ground deployment in Afghanistan, be healthy and whole and able to now go back into the cockpit, refreshed, kind of allowed to put everything aside that had happened previously, the crash and, and my daughter and, and the things that I had, you know, been able to endure and say, this is a clean start. I'm going to give everything I can and, and get into it um, from here. What about expunged speeding tickets? Did those pop up too? Because I've had a couple that have been expunged. They get me worried. If I, I don't one. think the expunged ones. I don't think okay. those show up. I, I, I get those expunged. Hopefully. I paid I paid some good money to have a few taken yeah. off. My, yeah. All right. It's, 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 it, I drive fast. Sorry. Uh, I just I want to get where I'm going. Uh, it's downtime. Sitting in the car is downtime. I just want to be, if I could, if I could star Trek teleport myself from point A to point B, I'd be a much happier person. I can't. Yeah. All right. Um, so you get this job here. Now, how do you know when that squadron who has the actual, like, how many people are in it? Like, are you automatically determined the guy to fly Marine One with the president, the no, vice president? Not, how does that not work? at all. Yeah. So we've got about 75 pilots. Um, okay. 45 of them ish are, are flying Ospreys, you know, our, our support aircraft. Um, and then about 35 of them, 30 of them are flying the White Tops. So at the time, it's the 60. Um, Blackhawk and our H3, which is the, the big aircraft that you see landing on the South Lawn. Um, those pilots, those 30, we go through four years of screening. And and so the first year, you're just a co-pilot. You're learning the aircraft. You're figuring out your duties. You're learning the sequence of everything. Second year, you're really in support of, you know, the staff and Secret Service. And then you kind of work your way into supporting the vice president. And then third year, you're really on tap to be vice president support. And then the fourth year, fourth year pilots that are there, their last year are um, named six or seven of them are named each year to be um, direct support to the president. And I in, never in my wildest dreams thought that that was going to be me um, and never thought that I would be you know, I saw the guys that were doing that and I, no way did I think that I was the same caliber as them. Um, Under what but, premise caliber of pilot caliber of individual though? Pilot, they, they yes. Slower? Uh, decision maker, um, skill set, um, aptitude, you know, you name it, you you're measuring yourself continually up to the, the standards that are put upon you. And, you know, I just didn't think that that was, my lot in life didn't think that that was going to be something I would be able to accomplish or even be named in the same conversation as those people. But I, I tried and I never stopped evaluating myself. Um, and so the end of my third year, I get named, yep. Hey, you're going to be one of the six or seven guys that's going to do this and be direct support of the president. 
And then I was fortunate enough. I was at 19 years of my career. I was the squadron granted me um, permission to stay for the last year. And so I got to stay on for my fifth year, which is usually not normal and support the transition from president Trump to president Biden and do that. And so um, the fourth and fifth years, yeah, I was, I was one of the six or seven guys that got to fly specifically supporting just the president. So while I was there for the first, you know, three years of, of Trump's presidency, filling in his co-pilot duties and um, supporting president or vice president Pence, you know, was able to be a co-pilot on a handful of times at the beginning of my career and then finish his presidency with supporting him exclusively. Any more pressure in flying around the president and the vice president? I, uh, yeah, I would say I, it's, well, I mean, some people would say, look, it's just another passenger, right? Like it doesn't matter. My well, job is you, the aircraft and it doesn't matter who's in the back. You know, I, I think about it often and I think about, you know, the, the, the seat of the, that the president's filling. And while that's a very, um, global, you know, the, the effects of that seat being replaced or filled is, um, on a global scale. I also think about flying around 24, 28 Marines. And if something that were to go South and I was able to make it out writing 28 letters that affect 28 families, spouses, kids, yeah. legacies, yeah. that to me is almost more paramount. It's almost a bigger um, concern. Um, but yeah, it's, you look back there and it almost grounds you instantly as to, holy cow, I, I'm here to do a job. I'm here with a mission. I better, um, you know, of course we take that, that mission very seriously, but it's, it makes, makes you be at the top of your game every second um, with, you feel like you have no room for, yeah. um, for, for that wiggle. Uh, any, did they ever converse with you? Any other president ever converse with you or is it just a quick salute and, yeah, usually getting on, it's a quick salute and it's a quick, you know, you know, follow up. How's your day going? What, you know, what, what's the flight going to look like? How are things, you know, shaking out? But, but there is some very unique and special time that I think is to be had up at Camp David or at the second residence where you get to see them interact in a different manner because the press is limited or, or non-existent. Um, and so, yeah, there's, there's a little bit more interaction there, but still you, you, you quickly realize the role you're filling. You're not, you're not there for, for a relationship. You're not there for conversation. You're there to fill your role, to get them from point A to point B and get them there successfully. And I mean, so I think that snaps you back into, okay, um, I'm here for a reason. I mean, are you only flying around the DC corridor? Is that really it? No, we, we support president and vice president, uh, we support the president globally. So wherever he is, we are there, um, to support. So, you know, fortunate enough to support, uh, the president in, you know, France, you know, when, when Trump, uh, president Trump crossed the, uh, the DMZ there into South from South Korea into North Korea, we were there, um, executing the mission and getting him up into the LZ. Um, so yeah, we're, we're a presence wherever he is. Uh, compare that experience to, to your one in combat. Which one was more difficult? Uh, it's it's a unique difference. Um, flying, I would say, flying in around South Korea up to the DMZ is 
is definitely interesting. You know, when you fly along and you see how South Korea is positioned and you see how they've had to live for decades in, in a defensive posture that humbles you right away. And now, you know, you're landing at the tip of that environment. Um, it, it sobers you up very quickly. Yeah. Um, and you know that the president's crossing over the DMZ into North Korea, and then he's coming back and the things that run through your mind and the readiness and the posture you maintain while that's occurring. Um, it's, it definitely puts a different perspective on being ready to go. Does that mental fatigue feel different after flying the president and vice president around than it did after an eight hour day in Baghdad? It, it does because the eight hour fatigue that happens in Iraq happens in about a, in a, in an hour flight um, anywhere else. And and that's just because, yeah, you're not getting shot at, or at least you hope you're not getting shot at, but you, you look back at the precious cargo that you're flying and it just puts a perspective that, that this is an important job. This is um, globally critical. And you want to perform at the best of your abilities every single time, every takeoff, every landing, every movement of the aircraft is testing your abilities and your precision. And so, yeah, the, the fatigue is, I would say, very similar. Um, was there any oh shit moments with Marine One? Any uh, moments where your heart skipped a beat a little bit and like, oh, that could have been trouble kind of deal or everything went fairly smoothly? No, it's, there was, there was definitely moments, um, you know, when weather degrades mm-hmm. and you again, get put in that position where it's lower, slower, let's, you know, figure out how we can circumnavigate these, these issues. Um, let's figure out how we make this timeline work. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting because I, one of the very first flights that I was responsible for was flying president Trump up to, Mount Rushmore for his 4th of July celebration that he did up there in the speech that he did while it was low threat. We had one zone where aircraft, multiple aircraft were going in and out of seven aircraft drop off passengers. And we're the last one in. We're also the first one out, but instead of getting shot at, there was a storm rolling in and, and adverse weather and hail start falling as these aircraft are trying to get out of the zone with their passengers and, and for national assets, hail damage uh, is not something that you want to in, encounter. And so that puts a different pressure on it, almost as if you're you're being overrun um, and you've got to get out of a zone, you know, at the, the, you know, very expeditiously. And so it's it's a different situation, but the pressure is still real and the perceived pressure is still very high. Yeah. Um... It's a different world, uh, a different <laughs> world to say the least. It How is. did you know you were done as far as, you know, your career and piloting and everything else? Uh, honestly, it was, I was in a flight, um, not with the president on board, but I was in a flight and I was looking out the window, co-pilot was flying and my mind started drifting somewhere else. And I thought when I came back to it and came back into the aircraft, I realized if I can't be fully present here, I don't belong here. 
Um, and, and it was in a unique position because there was a consideration that I stayed for a little bit longer and helped the squadron um, just fill a role and, and develop with our, our new assets that we were getting. But I had that feeling just when you know, you know, and it was, if I, if I'm thinking, if my mind is, is occupied with other things, I don't belong here. There's somebody else that's better qualified and in a better mindset than I am right now that, that can fill this seat and do this job and they deserve it more than I do right now. And, and that's truly what made me leave. Pretty self-aware to say the least. Um, you know, there's a tendency for some of us to hang on longer than we should. And- well, it, I think if I, if I found myself doing that without the president on board, I was just one flight away from doing it with him on board and he and the country and the squadron deserve more than that. Let's uh, go back to uh, the fall of Kabul um, in August of 21. Um, yeah. You wrote those plans. Um I assume you felt like it was a good plan. It was an executable one. And then you watched the whole thing unfold the way it did. Uh, what was your first reaction? Um, it, it was, it was disappointing. You know, you work with people on the ground for eight months, as little as that sounds for eight months, you build those relationships. You know, you talk to the airport director, the Afghan airport director and the individuals that are over there just trying to run their little piece of the pie, trying to make business work. You talk to, you know, you know, the, you know, the, the individuals that were escorting you and, you know, the individuals that were helping you bridge those relationships and you know how much work that they put into it. And then you see it all for not it. It's disheartening. And, and you don't try to take it. I try not to take, make it personal and think, well, I, why was I there? But you think about the people that are living in that on a daily basis, their whole world changed overnight. The interpreters and I mean, even the shop owners that were on the base that were coming in on a daily basis, trying to sell us, you know, suits and rugs and food and clean our, our cans and do the, those things, their lives were, were turned upside down overnight not because of something that they did. And to think about humanity that can be so drastically turned on its ear because of the acts and desires of someone else um, really makes you thankful for me, makes me thankful for what I have here. But then again, makes you realize um, that you don't have it all. You don't have everything under control like you think you do. And you don't have the plan as, as tightly knit as you wanted. Um, yeah, it's, it's frustrating. I mean, I, I guess you don't take it personal, but in the same respect, it's, you know, there's a part of me that says, how can you not? Right. I mean, it, uh, I, you know, I never officially deployed to Afghanistan. I've been there a couple of times, but you know, it was just quick turnarounds and, yeah. uh, regardless of that, I, you know, I found it hard not to take it personal just because we're all, you know, it's, it's all the same fight one way or another. Like to us, it's all the same fight. It, it doesn't matter it whether is. you spent a week there, a month there, a year there, it didn't matter. Um, but, you know, just having that particular job and then watching that whole thing go to hell in a handcart that quickly was 
disconcerting to say the least. Yeah. Uh, and especially since there were Marines who were lost there on that yeah. you know, second to last day, it, it makes the wound that much deeper. Absolutely. Um, so you hang them up and you're all done. Uh, now, do you know what you want to do with your life at this point? <laughs> you sound like my wife. She's oh, asking okay. me that question on a daily basis. No, I, I, you know, I was fortunate enough, Mark, to get out, retire. Um, <clears throat> that's a very surreal moment when yeah. you wear U.S. Marines on your chest and your name, when you can walk into a, a room and your resume unfolds in front of you because of your rank and your position. And then you take off that uniform and you go into civilian world and you walk into a place and nobody knows you from Adam and nobody knows what you've done or cares what you've done or mm -hmm. it's an interesting place. But I, I, I had a fortunate transition to know approximately what I wanted to do. And that was to one, go into business for myself kind of hang up aviation for a little bit, let that settle and, and stay away from, you know, contracting and doing the typical path that, that somebody might, you know, do that's compelling for some. And I thought, you know, I'm going to test myself. I'm going to get out of this machine. I'm going to figure out what my passions are. I'm going to figure out my calling. I'm going to figure out what really makes me go. And through that, I did two things. And you mentioned it earlier. I, I started, a commercial real estate development company with two partners because relationships are important to me. And, and that's one of those businesses where you get things done based on relationships and how you treat people reflects in how successful you can be. And then the other thing I, I did is I started coaching. I started trying to figure out what made me enabled to do 20 years in the Marine Corps and achieve the things that I felt were somewhat significant. And I wanted to help others do that as well, whether that's in the military or outside the military. And one of the things that I was able to do while I was in the military was be kind of a ready, fire, aim guy. Just tell me what to do. I'm going to take action and I'm going to refine it on the backside because we've all learned that you can only sit there and accept in Intel for a certain amount of time. And then you've got to take action. Well, I found out very quickly on the outside world. There's a lot of people that struggle with knowing when they're ready to take action. And so I wanted to be there to help coach them into taking that action, even if they didn't have everything figured out, because we'll figure it out on the, on the, on the way. We'll figure it out through mistakes. We'll figure it out through taking that risk and then adjusting course. And, um, and so, yeah, that's what I felt I could do. I was successful at instructing people how to fly. Now I just wanted to take that experience, that instructional mindset and put it into context in the civilian world. And so that's, that's what I do. Um, what's harder teaching somebody, uh, when it comes to consulting and how to shoot ready aim, uh, or is it harder to teach somebody to be a, a CH 53 echo pilot? The latter. <laughs> I mean, um, the for, the former, sorry, the former, okay. um, the flying uh, the aircraft and being in the military and becoming a pilot is step by step by step. You do this, you get here. These actions result in these 
you know, you know, these rewards and, and this placement and it's the, that runway is laid out in front of you. And yeah, there's some ambiguity as to, do I go on this deployment or do I take this role and do I go become this department head or do I fulfill this other position over here? Yeah, that's, that's personal preference, but teaching somebody how to do that outside the military when there's not necessarily a handbook and there's not necessarily somebody that's gone immediately before you and figuring it out on your own and learning what your calling is and learning what, what that drive is that can be incredibly hard, especially when it's, you know, you're doing it for somebody else that may not be able to answer those questions for themselves. So you have to ask why a lot. Well, why do you want to achieve this? You know, and, and then why do you, why, what sets you on that roadmap? And then why this? And, and you really have to be, you know, there's, I, I say there's a, there's gold miners and there's alchemists. There's miners, which are, are breaking big, heavy rocks and breaking it down in more, you know, digestible pieces. And then there's the alchemists that are really refining and turning that, that rock into gold. And you have to be kind of a, uh, you know, I have to be a miner at first, but then you really have to figure out the reasons behind it. And, and sometimes that can be incredibly hard, um, but it's incredibly rewarding. I, I started a podcast with, with one of my early coaching students who made some great strides through our time together coaching. And he came back and said, Hey, I want to, I want to apply this. And so we started a, a podcast called the second act that helps transitioning individuals, whether it's in the military or civilian world or going into marriage or going out of marriage or transitioning, whatever that looks like, trying to help them figure out what will make them successful so that their map, their roadmap is shorter than it, you know, it is for us. So. That's awesome. Um, you know, again, I, I, I think investing back into people always is a worthwhile venture, right? I mean, it's just, you know, it, it, you're never going to go wrong investing in yeah. people. Um, they, they can, they can turn it back on you tenfold and more often than not, people will surprise you, uh, when you put a little time and effort into them. And that goes the same for Marines, soldiers, everybody 100%. else, you know, they will, they will absolutely return it on you. Um, now that you are, are out, what do you miss the most? Camaraderie. Yeah. Having those people next to you that are sharing the same tag on their uniform, wearing the same uniform, focused in the same manner march into the same orders, go into the same, you know, objective. That's, um, that's something that's very rewarding when you're in. And I don't think a lot of us realize how rewarding it is until we get out and find ourselves, um, going solo or having to build the team to do that again in a different fashion. Um, but there's just a, such a sense of pride when you are standing in a formation and you see a, two, 300, 800 people around you that are all, all marching to the same orders. And you know that to the left and right of you, somebody's going to pick you up if you fall. Um, that's, that's a great place to be. It's a great, great feeling. Um, and it's hard to replicate on the outside, to be honest. What do you miss the most about flying? Do you still get a chance to do it? Do you, you I mean, do you have, have any recreational flying time at all? I, I don't, I, I haven't gotten back into it. Um, like I said, Sorry. I've tried to let it, I've tried to let it settle and tried to let it just marinate for a second and see 
okay, is this the same, is the same passion I had 20 years when I got in the same passion a year ago when I got out? Is that the same? And yeah, I love, I would love to fly again. Um, finding that right fit is, is interesting because now, now it's on my own dime. So I've got to figure out how much, how bad do I want it? Um, but it's also a chance for me to really focus on what's in front of me. And, and that is growing in these different fields and growing my name in a different, in a different field. Um, and I, I tell my wife, cause she asked me if I'm ever going to get back into it. I said, you know, I was successful and I was able to do that. I want to find what else I'm able to do. I can always go back, but I need to use this time to go forward, go a different direction. So eventually I'll, I'll find myself in the cockpit again. Yeah. Well, I, I, it's, it's hard, right? It's a hard, hard, uh, pulls you back, right? You know, that's, that's it all. It, it's hard, hard to walk away from completely. To say the least. I mean, look, a long, uh, prosperous career with filled with experiences, uh, good, bad, and indifferent. And, uh, you know, now on to bigger and better things, both in real estate and investing in people. I think it's awesome, man. I'm, I'm glad we connected. I'm glad we got a chance to share your story. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and look, time flew by. I didn't realize how, how quickly things had gone here. I know uh, we've got to get you moving. But, you know, I certainly appreciate you spending some time with us, man. It's great. Yeah. And uh, wish you nothing but the best going forward. It's great to have you here. Well, Mark, thank you. Thank you for what you are doing. And that's given voice to, you know, our service members who have served so faithfully, who are able to get their voice out and, and share their experiences. I mean, because that's, I think what a lot of service members just want to do is be heard. Um, and yeah. so thank you for your platform and thank you for, thank you. for what you're doing. I appreciate it. And again, it's just, you know, everybody's got a story. We all have a story and, and one isn't better than the other. One isn't bigger than the other. They're just different. Yeah, right. uh, and stories are very, you know, um, part of the process for all of us to, for lack of a better term, heal or just go forward and transition back into the rest of our normal lives. So yeah. uh, we, we hope to keep this going as long as we can here. But certainly, again, thank you so much for your time. It was great to hear your story. Yeah. Uh, thank you for your candor and honesty. And John Ballander, thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell, and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.